0: All right. Well, so we're back in Galatians, A Slave's Guide to the Free Life. If you don't have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab one right now? Um, I hope that you're getting the picture that we need our Bibles in here. This is what we're studying regularly. So make sure we're bringing our Bible with us. And I would really encourage you to bring your paper Bible. Okay? That's the one that you can underline, that's the one that you can. It's so good to get familiar with your Bible to the point where you're like, man, there's this verse that I remember seeing. It was really helpful. pretty sure I underlined it. It was on the right side of the page, and then you're flipping through, and and you find it because it's in your Bible, whereas if it's on your iPhone, it's just, you know, it's in this huge mass of data, and, and you're scrolling and scrolling. So helpful to have your Bible, okay? So bring your Bibles. We're in Galatians. We're talking about how... Galatians is a slave's guide to the free life. In other words, we're talking about how there are so many things that enslave us in life and the Galatian church was enslaved to something and Paul is giving them instructions on how to live free, how to be free from slavery, okay? It's like you're a slave in a prison where the door is wide open and the shackles have been taken off your hands, but you keep being a slave and you're not walking out into the freedom that's right there. So last week, um, we talked about how the gospel frees us from the slavery of fearing what other people think about us. And this week, we're talking about how the gospel frees us from the slavery of earning our own righteousness. Earning our own righteousness. So I, got, I, I brought a book for us today, okay? Children's book, okay, as you can tell. You guys know this book called Frederick? No? It's by this famous guy named Leo Lionelli. Uh, let's see here. You guys know the book Swimmy? Little black fish? No? Man, guys, these are classics. I mean, you can tell. It's got the little emblem on it. Um, there's one about a chameleon called The Color of His Own. Nothing. Okay. Well, these, are, these are classics. Anyways, we got Frederick here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the story of Frederick. And I'm going to let you know right up front, Angel already knows this. I'm not crazy about this book. Okay? Let's, let's go ahead and, and figure out why. Okay, so here we go. All along the meadow where the cows grazed and the horses ran, there was an old stone wall. In that wall, not far from the barn and the granary, a chatty family of field mice had their home. But the farmers had moved away, the barn was abandoned, the granary stood empty. And since winter was not far off, the little mice began to gather corn and nuts and wheat and straw. They all worked day and night, all except Frederick. Frederick, why don't you work, they asked. I do work, said Frederick. I gather the sun rays for the cold, dark winter days. And when they saw Frederick sitting there, staring at the meadow, they said, and now, Frederick? I gather colors, answered Frederick simply, for winter is gray. And once, Frederick seemed half asleep. Are you dreaming, Frederick? They asked reproachfully. But Frederick said, oh no, I am gathering words for the winter days are long and many and we'll run out of things to say. The winter days came and when the first snow fell, the five little field mice took to their hideout in the stones. In the beginning, there was lots to eat and the mice told stories of foolish foxes and silly cats. They were a happy family. A little by little, they had nibbled up most of the nuts and berries. The straw was gone. The corn was only a memory. It was cold in the wall, and no one felt like chatting. Then they remembered what Frederick had said about sun rays and colors and words. Where are your supplies, Frederick, they asked. Close your eyes, said Frederick. And as he climbed on a big stone, he said, Now I send you the rays of the sun. Do you feel how their golden glow? And as Frederick spoke of the sun, the four little mice began to feel warmer. Was it Frederick's voice? Was it magic? And how about the colors, Frederick, they asked anxiously. Close your eyes again, Frederick said, and when he told them of the blue periwinkles and the red poppies and the yellow wheat and the green leaves and the berry bush, they saw the colors as clearly as if they'd been painted in their minds. And the words, Frederick? Frederick? Frederick cleared his throat, waited a moment, and then, as if from a stage, he said, Who scatters the snowflakes? Who melts the ice? Who spoils the weather? Who makes it nice? Who grows the 4 leaf clovers in June? Who dims the daylight? Who lights the moon? Four little field mice who live in the sky, four little field mice like you and I. One is the spring mouse who turns on the showers, then comes the summer who paints in the flowers. The fall mouse is next with walnuts and wheat, and winter is last with cold little feet. Aren't we lucky the seasons are four? Think of a year with one less or one more. When Frederick had finished, they all applauded. But Frederick, they said, you are a poet. And Frederick blushed, took a bow, and said, shyly, I know it. <laughs> then they all died of <laughs> Precisely. Okay? Now, can anyone guess why I don't really like that book? Elise? Theologically, it's off. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) There is some miscues in the theology of it, yeah. There's there's another reason, though. Maddie? Uh, Frederick is lazy, right? I mean, I can appreciate art and poetry and what that, but let's face it, they got to survive through the winter, right? And Frederick sat there while they were doing all the work, and it bugs me. And I read this story to my children, and I think... Uh, and I usually add a few lines in there. I said, and Frederick was lazy and they all died afterwards because Frederick didn't do any work, right? My kids know my opinions because of the way that I read storybooks. and the, I have lots of opinions about things. I have opinions about Halloween decorations and we're going for a walk yesterday and every house that's got skeletons hanging up, Moira's like, dad's not going to like that house. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So apparently I, I I'm very free with my opinions. But I struggle with those who don't have strong work ethic. That, and, I, and my interpretation of a strong work ethic is they do the work that really needs to be done, like collecting the food for the winter. But we get to a story in the Bible with two women and Jesus, Mary and Martha. And in that story, the hero of the story is the one who sits there and does nothing except listen to Jesus while Martha's back in the kitchen working really hard, right? And so maybe Frederick's on to something. Maybe there's a time where it's better to sit and better to not work than it is to work. And I think that's what Paul is pulling out of the Galatians church for us today. Okay, that's what Paul is highlighting in this passage that we're going to read, is that um, the Galatians' desire to work is actually hurting them rather than helping them. So that's what we're going to look at today. So if you have your Bible, open up to Galatians chapter 2, and then we're going to jump into Galatians chapter 3. Okay, so we're going to start back in Galatians 2 just to get a a strong basis. So we didn't really focus on this part of Galatians 2 last time, so let's focus on it really briefly. Galatians 2, 15 and 16. Let's read that together. It says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. This is Paul talking to Peter. Yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That sounds kind of repetitive, doesn't it? Paul says the same thing basically three different ways, and that thing that he's saying is the way that we are saved is by being justified by faith and not by works of the law. So point number one, we're justified by our faith in Jesus. Who knows what the term justified means? What does justified mean? Yeah, Spence? Like you've for the right like, or um, like what you did was right because of it. Okay, That's yeah, in normal life, if you think you are justified in your actions, what we're saying is you were right in what you did. You had good reason for what you did, right? Now this, the way we're using it here, is actually is a legal term. It's something that would show up in the court of law and to say that someone was justified it would mean that they were declared to be righteous or they were declared to be without any wrong and here we're learning that when we have faith in jesus christ god justifies us which means he declares us to be righteous now are we really righteous are we forever never going to sin again never sinned in the past no we're not righteous but it's just as if we had never sinned. That's a helpful way to remember the word justified. Okay? So when we're justified by God, it's just as if we had never sinned in the first place. Because God declares us to be righteous. He pronounces us to be righteous. And the way we get that righteousness is by faith and not by works. So the problem with Judaism, starting from the law and going on, is this idea that the way that I become righteous is by obeying the law and keeping the law and obeying the law and keeping the law. But they could never do it, right? They could never keep the law. They could never perfectly obey the law. And so Jesus comes and he says, the way to be righteous is by believing in me. And so how does this work? Well, it works because when Jesus died on the cross, he took our sins. He died for us. He's the only one who lived the perfect life. And when he dies and we believe in him, our sin goes to Jesus And Jesus' righteousness goes to us. So that when God looks at us, he looks at us as justified, meaning we have Christ's righteousness. So when he looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Jesus' righteousness. And on the cross, when he looked at Jesus, he didn't see Jesus' righteousness. He saw your sin. And then Jesus dies and pays for that sin. Now the Galatians believed this, and hopefully we believe this too, That was how they entered into a relationship with God, that they believed the gospel. But we're about to see that the Galatians have a really big problem. If you look down in your Bible, what's the first thing it says in chapter three? What's your Bible say? Say it. Oh, foolish Galatians. Galatians. Now this is about the strongest language we get from Paul in his letters. He's basically saying, you idiots. How could you leave What you've left, okay? So there's a big problem with the Galatians. And to understand the problem with the Galatians, we need to understand that there's a normal process that's supposed to happen in the Christian life. Okay, so first, the gospel tells us that we are complete sinners, right? That we're helpless, that we can't be saved apart from Christ. That nothing we can do can make us righteous in God's eyes. Are we all on the same page with that? that's where the gospel begins? okay. In our complete helplessness, we learn that Jesus Christ came in order to die for our sins so that we can follow God. And so we hear the gospel and we're gripped by this gospel. And as we're gripped by the gospel, the third step would be that we actually put our faith in the gospel. That we say, yes, I believe that Jesus really did die for my sins. And I put my faith in Jesus as my savior. And so... That's what it is to believe the gospel. And when that happens, it says that God gives us his spirit inside of us. But then what should come next? What comes next in the Christian life after we believe the gospel? Or what should come next? We should live a life dedicated for Christ. Right? So at, at step three, when I believe the gospel, am I like all of a sudden perfect and I'm never going to sin ever again? No, it's it's, God has declared me perfect. He says, I see you as perfect because of what Jesus did for you. You're not perfect, okay? And you've got a long way to go. And so the Christian life from here all the way till the end is one of growing in Christ's likeness and growing in holiness and growing in actual righteousness and becoming more and more righteous in what you do even though you've already been declared righteous by God. That's why, you know, some faiths have objections about Christianity, okay? So one that I've heard a lot is Christianity is way too easy. All you have to do is ask for forgiveness for your sins, and then you can do whatever you want. Is that true? No. Okay, because if you do whatever you want, it suggests that you never really understood the gospel in the first place. You didn't really get the fact that Jesus died to save you from sin so that you could live a life that wasn't sinning anymore. You guys know the story of the woman caught in adultery and the people drag her out to stone her in front of Jesus and they say, you know, Jesus, what do you have to say about this? And Jesus says, whoever's not sinned, let him be the one to cast the first stone. And they all walk away and Jesus is left there who hasn't sinned and he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. So he shows her grace. He shows her the gospel, but then he gives her a very clear instruction. Don't go back to the adulterous relationship you're in, but go and sin no more. And so all of the Christian life is to be one of fighting sin, of leaving sin, of growing in righteousness. Now, the problem with the Galatians is that they got that, but they didn't get how they were supposed to do it. Okay, so let's figure out the Galatian problem in chapter 3. So, follow along in chapter 3. Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, I stood in front of you. I preached the gospel to you powerfully. You saw, you were gripped by the fact that Jesus had died for your sins. Let me ask you this Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, when you received God's spirit by becoming a Christian, was it because of all the good stuff you did? Or was it because God just gave it to you when you believed? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the faith by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, these are all rhetorical questions, and they're all drawing them to see one thing. And that one thing is this. You got the gospel by faith, not by works of the law. Okay? So when you came to get God's spirit in you and the strength and the joy that comes from the gospel, it was because you believed, not because of anything that you did. The problem for the Galatians is that they started right, but now they were trying to continue in the Christian life, to grow in the Christian life by following the law. They started in grace, and they were trying to grow by sheer willpower in obedience to the law. And Paul says this is foolishness. But it's what we do all the time. We all tend to think that we're saved by the gospel, by grace, but then we grow as Christians through our own willpower that we grow by our own strength to obey and follow the teachings of the bible don't we okay so we read the bible we know we're supposed to not lie not sin not not commit adultery not lust not get angry and and we know these things and we realize god saved us we couldn't do anything to be saved but now we're going to do everything we can to follow the rules of the bible on our own willpower so we're going to tell ourselves man these things are awful Think about where it's gonna lead me. This is terrible. It's you know, if I do this sin, you know, it, it might bring shame on the church, shame on my family. So we tell our things the bad things that'll happen. Maybe we go to church and we read our Bibles because surely if, if I follow these rules, I know I'm supposed to pray, read my Bible, go to church, this will make me righteous if I follow these rules. Or maybe we put in place our own rules and we say, Man, if I I know if I'm struggling with anger, I'm just gonna walk away. I'm gonna to count to ten. I'm going to change the subject, I'm going to walk away. These are the rules that are going to help me to deal with anger. Or if I'm struggling with lust, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to look at the computer after 8 o'clock. I'm not going to have a computer in my room. Um, I'm going to get internet accountability software. This is how I'm going to handle my struggle with lust. And we think that we can grow purely based on our own self-discipline. And it doesn't take long to realize that this doesn't work. And when it doesn't work what do we do? We form accountability groups. So I, I have not been able to stop sinning on my own power. So I'm going to get other people to help me to stop sinning. Okay. And so if maybe if I can just think about how frustrating it's going to be to go to my accountability group and tell them that I sinned, then maybe I won't sin anymore. And we find that over time that that doesn't really work either because when that sin grips our heart, we don't care about our accountability group. We aren't thinking about them. We're just thinking about that moment. And so we continue to sin, and we don't feel like we're growing in righteousness, and we continue to feel guilty and frustrated and defeated by sin. Now, am I the only one who has experienced this, or have you experienced this as well? Thank you. I'm all by myself. Okay, good. You guys, I'll stop here. You already got this sermon down. Okay. <laughs> So having been saved by grace, knowing we can do nothing to save ourselves, we then try to grow like Jesus on our own willpower. In a sense, we try to save ourselves. Okay, And there's a big disconnect here. The disconnect, think of it like this. It's like a person that's out in the middle of the ocean, shipwrecked, floating on a scrap of the boat that he was on that went down to the bottom of the ocean. He's been out there for months and months, barely alive, And an aircraft carrier comes by and sees him, right? Nuclear-powered engines, just state-of-the-art. And they see him, and they rescue him, and they pull him up on board, and he is saved by grace, right? There was nothing he could do. He was lost at sea. He was a dead man floating there. And and he's saved, and, and it's very clear that he did nothing to save himself, right? And as the boat is walking, it is moving along, getting him to shore, back to his family, back to, to heaven, to safety. The man is on the edge of the boat, and he rolls over, and he takes an oar, and he's reaching for the water, and he's saying, let me help the boat along here. I'm going to row my way to heaven. That's, that's what we do when we say we're saved completely by grace, but now I'm going to you know, work my way the rest of the way. I'm going to use my own willpower to become righteous on my way to heaven. So let's look at the next part. The next part here is two reminders that Paul points to from history. So in light of the Galatian problem, he points them back into history to two quick reminders. Look at verse 6. We'll read 6 through 8. Paul says, just as Abraham believes, we've got to go back. So in the beginning of verse 5 here, he says, Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you guys remember that from our Genesis series where God tells Abraham he's going to have all these children, more than he could count, more than the stars in the sky, and says, go out, look at the stars in the sky, and it says, Abraham believed God and it counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What Paul's saying here is this. True children of God live by faith and not by the law, just like Abraham. This is really important for the Galatians because you guys remember the problem is that the false teachers came in and they said, in order for you guys to really be true children of God, you have to start obeying the law. And so Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Look back to Abraham. Abraham didn't have the law. The law came 430 years after Abraham. You know what Abraham had? He had faith. If you want to be a true child of God, you need to live by faith. And then he continues in verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So he points back to the law and he says, Oh, and by the way, those of you who think it's such a great idea to get righteous by following the law, look at what the law says. The law says that if you don't follow every single part of the law perfectly your entire life, you are under a curse. Your life depends on how well you follow the law if you choose to go that route. If we choose to live our life out of self-discipline and willpower and to say that my righteousness depends on my ability to follow all the rules in the Bible, we are just putting ourselves under a curse. We're jumping under a curse when God has blessings and grace waiting for us. And it, again, causes us to wrestle with guilt and condemnation when we fail to live up to our own rules and fail to live up to our own standards. I have an example of this in this book called Not Even a Hint. Okay, this is a great book by a guy named Joshua Harris, um, Not Even a Hint, Guarding Your Heart Against Lust. Okay, So a helpful book if you're struggling with that topic, one that I'd recommend you pick up. Here's how it begins. Listen to this. Seven of us were gathered in the dimly lit living room. A single sheet of notebook paper passed slowly between each person. Finally, it came to me. I scanned the numbered list, then solemnly signed my name at the bottom of the page. The contract, as we had come to call it, was a strict code of conduct. A list of promises that each of us was vowing to follow for the coming year. We would read our Bibles every day, go to church every Sunday, memorize a passage of scripture every week, fast every Tuesday, share our faith with one person each week, we wouldn't watch any movies, we wouldn't kiss a girl, we wouldn't drink alcohol, and we wouldn't masturbate. Actually, I do remember all the promises. I don't remember all the promises on that list. I think there were nearly 15, but I distinctly remember the vow to refrain from masturbating was number 10 on the list. That promise held the particular attention of each of us. I was 18 years old. The other six guys ranged in age from 17 to 24. That summer we were working as counselors at a Christian leadership camp in Colorado. Carlos, Clint, and I washed dishes. Don, Brooke, John, and Scott uh, shuttled students in the vans. We called ourselves the Stallions uh, named after a cabin several of the guys lived in. I can't remember exactly when the idea for the contract came up. I guess we wanted rules. We wanted to know we were pleasing God. The whole process of becoming holy seemed complicated to us, so the idea of reducing our faith to a manageable list of promises and prohibitions was appealing. So there we were in John's parents' living room, signing our names. After we were done, John took the piece of paper, placed it on the floor in the center of the room, and knelt beside it. Come on, guys, he said, let's seal our vow with a prayer. The whole thing was very dramatic. All that was missing was a rising orchestral theme playing in the background. We got down on our knees, huddled in a circle, and extended our right hands onto the sheet of paper. We closed our eyes and bowed our heads, then pledged before God to obey every rule on the list. It was official. The contract was ratified. I felt sure that the angels in heaven must be leaning down in amazement, watching our oppressive display of godliness and the sheer strength of will in the room. A few days later, we all left for home. I was still basking in the euphoria of our religious zeal. Every generation needs men of courage, men of conviction, men of strength, men of God. I was one of those men. The illusion... Lasted about two weeks. That's when I broke rule number 10 in the contract. The year that followed was a humbling lesson in how utterly incapable I was of being righteous on my own strength. I can now laugh, or I can laugh now as I look back on that year under the tyranny of the contract. But it really taught me some important lessons about the limitations of human rules and regulations to bring about real change in a person's life. Especially in the area of lust, he said wow, you can resonate with that. Okay, so here, he set up his own law. He set up his own law that he would follow in order to get salvation. And they were all going to do it by their own willpower, right? And that's so often how we live. And again, it brings us under the curse of the law because did that law make him feel free and forgiven? No, it made him feel condemned and cursed because he couldn't live up to his own law. So that's what the Galatians were doing. That's what we do. And this is what Paul calls complete foolishness. It's foolish to say I was dead in sin, unable to help myself, but from here on out, I've got it. From here on out, I'm going to live by my own willpower. So what does Paul do? How do we get out of this mess? Well, Paul points the Galatians back to Jesus. And at the end of this passage, in verses um, 11 to 14, he says this, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So in the law, I talked about how to know that someone was cursed. And the way you knew someone was cursed was you hung them up on a tree. This doesn't mean that if you have a tree house, you're cursed, okay? That's not what we're talking about. It means that that person would have been stoned, they would have been killed for their sin, they would have been gone under God's condemnation, and they were to be hung on a tree to show everybody what it looks like to be cursed by God. Jesus also was hung on a tree. He was hung on a cross, right? And being hung on that cross, Jesus took the curse that's upon us. And when it says that Jesus was hung on a tree, he was hung there for us, meaning in our place. He took the curse that we deserve for trying to earn our own righteousness so that we might get the blessing that he earned. The implication is that we need to stop trying to become righteous through our own obedience. We need to stop trying to earn God's favor by obeying his rules on our own strength, and we need to stop uh, trying, and we need to start living in the blessing that Jesus has bought for us. So big question. How do we do that? Okay? How do we do that? Well, let's get to this. The big idea that Paul's getting to in this passage is this. We are not only saved by the gospel, but we also grow by the gospel. That the gospel isn't just the beginning of the Christian faith, it's actually the entirety of the Christian faith. Your whole life is determined by the gospel. Another way of saying it is we're not only justified by faith in the gospel, but we're also sanctified by faith in the gospel. And that's a theological word that just means we're made, we grow in righteousness, we grow in holiness by obeying and following the gospel. So, how does this all happen? How do we do this in the real nitty gritty part of life? Well, we begin by admitting that we are powerless to change. On our own. So, as I talk through this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about a particular sin that you cannot beat, that it just sticks around, sticks around, sticks around. Whether it's pride, whether it's apathy, whether it's anger, whether it's lust, um, whatever it is, picture that sin. And so, the first thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge that we are powerless to justify ourselves before God, powerless to change. Which means when you struggle with anger or lust or pride or any other sin, you begin by saying, God, there is no way that I can beat this on my own strength. It means you stop trying to become like Jesus by simply changing your behaviors. So much of us think that Christianity is behavior modification, just acting differently. That's what makes us holy. And so don't think that a filter on your computer or on your TV will stop you from lusting. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've had that installed on your computer and you found a way around it. Because the problem isn't the computer. The problem isn't your behavior. The problem is in your heart. Or don't think that going to church and reading your Bible will magically make you less proud. Or don't think that taking deep breaths or counting to ten or walking away will solve your struggle with anger. Reality is we need to realize that we're helpless on our own. And the problem is in our heart, not in our behavior. So the second thing we need to do is we need to get to the root of our sin. We need to ask ourselves, what is causing me to act this way? And more specifically, what idol am I worshiping that is causing me to sin in this way? All of sin is the result of misplaced worship. We are created to worship God. And when we worship God, out of that comes right living. Sin is evidence of the fact that we're worshiping something other than God over and above God. So when we worship popularity, we get angry at those who get in our way to achieving it. We get depressed when we can't have it and we get proud when we achieve it. So we might say, I have to stop being angry. I have to stop being proud. I need to overcome depression. But none of those are the real root of the problem. The real root of the problem is that you're worshiping popularity over worshiping God. When we worship sex, we might do anything in our hearts. Um, in our hearts, we long to do anything to see it or engage it. And that's why we work our way around any of the hurdles that we try to put in our path. Okay, we might put an app on our phone. We might put internet accountability. We might tell ourselves we're not going to look at the internet at, at this hour. That's just going to slow things down. But the real root of the problem is in your heart and what you're worshiping. It's not your computer that's the problem. It's your heart. It's your idolatry that you're worshiping sex rather than worshiping God. So we need to get to the root of the problem. And then we need to do what the gospel tells us to do. We need to confess our sin to God and ask for his forgiveness. Notice that when Joshua Harris wrote up the contract with his buddies, there was no place for them or there was nowhere in that contract that said what they were supposed to do, and they all broke it, which they were all inevitably going to do. They were writing a contract to say that we are no longer going to be sinners when they are very much sinners. Our life is not supposed to be one of perfect obedience. That should be the goal. Our life is to be one of continual repentance. Now repentance is hard because it acknowledges that we're all messed up and that despite our best efforts, we're going to continue to sin and even that we're powerless to stop sinning but repentance is a continual turning to God, a continual turning to the one who is powerful enough to help us stop sinning. It's telling him that we're completely messed up, which he already knows, and asking for the forgiveness, which he's already promised that he'll give us. So because we will never be perfect, because we'll never stop sinning, all of life must be one of repentance. And when we stop repenting of sin, we stop growing in righteousness. After we repent... We need to remember that we are accepted by God even in our sin. We need to remember the fact that God has forgiven us and justified us and declared us righteous because of what Jesus has done. We're never going to change if we think that our behavior earns our acceptance before God. The amazing thing about God's plan for salvation is that first God comes and he loves you and he accepts you and he welcomes you into his family. And he says, there's nothing you could do to lose my love. Now grow in obedience to me. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it's like having your own parents love you that way. If your parents said, well, maybe we'll pay for college. Maybe we'll get you a car when you're 16. Maybe we'll let you live in the house if you perfectly follow all of our rules. But the day you mess up, you are so out of here how's life going to be for you? Pretty rough, right? You're going to live in fear. You're going to know that at some point you're going to mess up. So the real idea is, how am I going to hide this from them rather than how am I going to obey them perfectly? But God says, no, no, no. There's nothing you could do to get kicked out of my house. I've already forgiven you. You're already loved. You're already accepted. Now knowing that, continue to follow me, continue to grow in righteousness. And finally, We need to rely on God's spirit to change us. We need to know that God has put his spirit in us to be the power that changes us. It's not us that changes things. It's not our rules or our contract that we can write out for ourselves. It's not even our accountability group. Though accountability groups are helpful for a time, ultimately, it's not having a bunch of guys that you're going to feel guilty telling that you messed up or a bunch of girls that you're going to feel guilty telling you messed up that's going to change you. It's God's spirit inside of you that's going to change you. So at the end of the day, the big question is, how do we change? How do we live a life where we're being made more and more holy, more and more righteous? And the answer is we have to continue to go back to the gospel. We have to continue to go back to the fact that we're powerless on our own strength. That the root of our sin is because we aren't believing the gospel. We're not worshipping God. That we have to confess and repent of our sin and ask for his forgiveness that we need to remember that we are already accepted by God and continue to grow knowing that and that we need to rely on God's spirit to change us and not on our own strength. So as you think about that sin that you continue to commit, I want you to think, what am I worshiping more than Jesus? What am I worshiping that causes me to continue to disobey God and how can I replace that false idea that false god that false savior with the true savior the next time that i'm tempted so that's what i want to leave you with is that idea let's go ahead and pray and we'll close with that heavenly father we thank you that you accept us from the moment that we confess our sin and receive the grace that is waiting for us at the cross we thank you that there's nothing we can do to lose that acceptance and that love and that it's in that love and acceptance that you nurture us and you grow us in the way that we're supposed to be in righteous living. And so God, I pray for us as we see the sins and the idols in our hearts, that you would help us to get to the bottom and get to the root of each one of them and to see what it is, where, that our, where it is that our worship is misplaced so that we can um, confess that, repent of it, and put our worship where it ought to be, which is towards you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. See you Wednesday.